John chapter 4 verse 27 And at this point his disciple came And they marveled that he, he talked with a woman Yet no one said what do you seek Or why are you talking with her The woman then left her water pot Went her way into the city And said to the man Come See a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciple urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat, of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, There are still four months and then come the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look at the field, for they are already white for harvest. receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all, I, all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stays there for two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe. Not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Um, be a Berean, a studier of the word, because... You know, as much as you can ideal, idealistically agree with that, I don't want you led astray by anyone, be it myself or anyone. And, and I just really want to make sure that you know when somebody talks trash to you that it's trash. So, and we know that because we live in a city where people are always selling the Bolex watch, you know, or the, the whatever, and, you know, G-Stap, you know, shirts and all that. And it's like, you mean, a counterfeit's just not the same thing. Anyways. 1 Timothy 2.4 tells us that God desires all men to be saved. Let that sink in your head. God desires all men, not all mankind, as if, well, he wants to make sure that they're, you know, that he, he'll, he'd save a Chinese person and he'd save a, you know, a Korean person and he'd save an African. He wants all human beings, every human being to be saved. Now, he's not going to get it what he wants, but it is what he wants. And you say, well, is that God's will? It tells us in 2 Peter 3, 9 that God's will, he is not willing that any should perish, but rather that all would come to repentance. It's God's will that all would come to repentance. But he's not going to get what he wants. But it's what he wants. God says all the way back in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 33, 11, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. As a matter of fact, since the fall of man, God has been aching for that harvest of souls. This Jewish year starts with a harvest in the month of Nisan. The festivals that he ordained all revolve around them. As a matter of fact, the greatest book of redemption, if you will, in the Old Testament, the book of Ruth, centers on the harvest. He craves relationship with people and it governs all he does. Every decision God makes is about drawing people to him. Every decision. It really doesn't matter. And so understand when we say, God, give me something good, in God's estimation, whatever brings you closer to him is good. 
That could be the flu or cancer. So, you know, oh, God would never give me that. God will give you what is necessary to bring you to him. And that is important because why would God give you something that would take you away from him? So you're like, God, the best thing for me is to win the lottery. And God says, not if it draws you away from me, it doesn't. So everything that God does is governed on the issue of a harvest of souls. And he created the seed and the season to reflect that. In Mark chapter 4, verse 26, he says that the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Of all of the illustrations or metaphors that he uses in regards to the kingdom of God, in regards to people and relationships, it will all revolve around the harvest more than anything. He says in Mark chapter, two, uh, chapter 4, verse 27, that the man sleeps at night, raises by the day, and the seed should sprout and grow, but he himself doesn't even know how. For the earth yields crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, and then after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts to the sickle. Immediately he puts to immediately he puts to the sickle because the harvest has come. As a matter of fact, the sermon of the kingdom, which is in Matthew 13, in essence revolves around the harvest, at least the first few parables of the seven. The problem is that good seed isn't the only thing that is sown into the hearts of men. Jesus taught us that in Matthew 13 as well. These tares, these weeds show us that the soil is fertile, but it's been poorly or maliciously sowed. Well, in the same light, there's this girl that we know. Her heart's a garden of tares. She's been running through the system of relationships and things have been rough. Five failed marriages. She's now living in a low part of town and rejected by the low people who live in the low part of town. And she only emerges when everyone else is gone, even after all of this social criticizing and berating by the quote-unquote better people. She still isn't numb to it. I mean, after all, she'd rather avoid them altogether. Who wants to see those stairs one more time? Some of you are familiar with those stairs. The numbness is set in in a different direction. There's no such thing as a committed man, she would say to herself. Give what you have to to keep them as long as you can. She's numb to the lies and the promises, the swag of men. It seems like every time a man speaks, she's rolling her eyes inside. Now she raises the white flag of her surrendered virtue and she moves in with a guy who isn't even pretending to commit. Men suck. The most amazing part to me is that God still comes to her as a man. Of all the things he could have come to, He doesn't come to her as a new thing. He redeems the old, and I learn from this. As a Christian, it also carries, if you think about it, a mountain's weight of disappointing connotations. I don't try a new term. I'm a new vintage believer. How do you have a new vintage anything? Or I'm not a Christian. I'm just a follower, as if Christianity was like Tumblr or Instagram. But if you think about it, I I should do what Jesus teaches me, which is to seek to redeem an old one. Someone says, are you religious? And we're like, oh, I'm not religious. I just love God. But we are religious. Uh, They're just not as they know religion. To be honest, what we should be doing is telling them, yes, I am religious. And what religious is, is a relationship. I mean, in the mind of an unbeliever, religion is just politics and tradition mixed up in a cocktail and poorly drunk. And we're like, to be honest... When they ask her, they're saying, are you like a spiritual person? Are you a person that somehow I can equate with God? And we're already stopping them when they're actually opening the door for us. And they say, yes, we are. Religious in a simple sense means devoted. And I pray that we'd be the most devoted people on the planet. So I'm not seeking to write a new term. I'm actually redeeming an old one. I'm not jumping ship. I'm looking for a new crew. And so when Jesus comes, he meets her at ground level. Where? Interestingly enough, where Jacob dug into the ground until he found water. He dug and he dug and he dug very deep. And when he did, he found water and he found lots of it. And so now Jesus starts to dig into her heart. He sifts through the clumps of regret that she has and he stops uprooting all those horrible tears that have for so long boastfully made themselves at home there. You know what I've noticed, especially this week, is it's been sort of horribly thrust in our face one more time is in our culture, hopelessness is an incumbent weed. Have you noticed that? When we see it in the suicides of famous people recently, people, by the way, that we may have known, people that others envied. And then we see the fruit of encountering Jesus with your hopelessness in hand. And it is radically different. Jesus has met this girl and she's already changed. In verse 27, it says, at this point, the disciples came and they marveled that he 
talked with a woman, yet no one said, why do you, what do you seek or why are you talking? Well, they're, oh, they're amazed, but they're not asking. And the woman left her water pot and went into the city. Now, I'd like you to consider the fact that means two different groups of people have gone into the city and we have a comparison we could miss. In chapter 4, verse 8, when Jesus started this conversation with her, the reason he was able to start this conversation is the people who would have interfered, the disciples, he sent into the city to bring food back. Now the woman goes into the same city. So the guys went to go get food in a city they didn't want to be in, in a place they didn't feel welcome and they didn't like the people who were there. And they went in to get, to get food, probably gritting their teeth and pretending some form of politeness. We know how that is. And they came back and brought food back and trying to get Jesus to eat it. This woman goes and she brings back a whole lot of people. But I want you to consider the fact in verse 28, it says the woman left her water pot. Now that tells me something and we use this term. So I'd love for you to know it with us so we can use it on you when necessary. We use the term the well from this verse. You see, when the woman came to the well, she didn't expect to meet Jesus there. She didn't expect to meet anyone there. That's why she went when she did. And she came to do a very menial task. She came to go get water. It wasn't like there was running water. There were taps in the house. This was the water she got. This was everything from drinking to washing to flushing your toilet, if you will. It all gets down to this bucket she's going to bring back. And she comes with the bucket, with the water pot. But there, she encounters Jesus Christ And you realize as she encounters Jesus Christ, her whole life is going to be changed and she didn't even see it coming. Oh, God had the appointment already set up because it tells us he had to go through Samaria. He was was completely aware of what was going to happen. She wasn't. She went there because she, well, that was what she, she came there because she had a task to do. Completely unaware that at that moment her entire life was going to change. And that can happen to you too. Often in life, God presents us with such wells. In other words, God tells you there's a certain spot I want you to go to or a certain thing I want you to do. And we fill in the rest of the blanks pretty easily. God said, go east. So that means I'm going to go and start an orphanage in China. No, he said, go east. How far east? He hasn't told me yet. Or God said, I want you to go do this certain thing. And you've already given him your five or 10 year plan. And often what happens is in route or somewhere as you get to the spot, God actually says, now we can take you to the next step. And it's completely different than you thought. I mean, let's face it. The gal got up somewhere in that day. She grabbed her water pot, assumed she was going to get water and go home. That was it. But God had a different plan. The well is a place that you go to expect to get something simply done. And you can tick the box and walk away. And somewhere in it, God uses that moment to pivot the rest of your life. Paul by the way, would experience that. He tries to go north into Bithynia and west into Asia. That would be, by the way, Istanbul and Ephesus today, Gushadasi. And he can't get into either. The Holy Spirit forbids him. And he winds up, instead of going due north or due west, he winds up going northwest, if you will. He kind of meets in the middle. Winds up in a little town called Troas. He had just picked up a teen named Timothy, who, in essence, was a new recruit to the ministry. And this is what Timothy gets to see on his first sort of excursion with Paul is this guy has no clue where he's going. But when he winds up there in Troas, he gets a vision of a Macedonian man and Paul will then shift his entire ministry towards Europe for the rest of that particular trip. Now, I don't know if Paul had that idea beforehand, but God knew how to get him there. And what I've learned is often God knows how to get you someplace you might not want to go or you'd go early. And God actually then has to kind of play a game of chess with you and say, here's the first step. But that first step is all he's holding you required. uh, He's the only thing he's requiring for you at that moment, because it's the only part that he's made clear. And, And when you when God hasn't made something else clear, actually standing still isn't a bad idea. I'll be honest with you. Some of you, maybe that's a gift for you. We definitely have friends that standing still is, 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 is actually sort of their norm. Then they fall asleep, but that's sort of their norm. And there's others of us that standing still is the greatest act of faith we exercise. I'm one of those people. You probably guess that. So when God says stay, that takes or sit still. That takes greater faith for me than for me just to run around and do crazy stuff all over the place. Well, here she went 
but she left her water pot because she found something greater. And it says in verse 28 that the woman left her water pot and she went into the city and she said to the men, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Now note, it says that she said to the men. Did you notice that? It doesn't say she said to the peeps, to the people, to the general populace. She said to the men. And I wonder what men the men were. Were any of those men her ex-husbands? Were any of those men people that, you know, she probably went out with a couple times? We don't know. We just read it as the men. But what's clear is, for a gal who's known men and it's been a bad deal, it's interesting that that's the first place she goes. And I can't help but wonder what happens when we really encounter Jesus and how that causes us to look at our past differently. Now, please understand something. If you run into Jesus and it makes you angrier about the people in your past, I'm curious about the encounter you had with them. Some of you are familiar with the current suicide of Chester Bennington, the singer of Lincoln Park this week, who was a very good friend of Chris Cornell of Soundgarden, who just weeks before committed suicide, both, by the way, right after a concert. Maybe you didn't know, but Chester Bennington actually hung himself, as did Chris Cornell, and he hung himself on Chris Cornell's birthday. And he came from a very, very troubled past. When I look and I hear what he sings, and I see where he's come from in his past, and I realize that the anger and the bile that he continued to drink from where he had come from, had consumed him to the place where he was convinced that his life could never rise above the damaged goods he viewed himself because of where he came from. And if it not be for the grace of God, some of us would be in the same place. Some of us have come from similar backgrounds. But when you encounter Jesus, it is amazing how you can look at the same people through very different eyes. I mean, I think a woman who is living with a guy, had five failed marriages, runs to talk to the men, and I think, what a wild ride. This girl of all, and imagine what she could have said. Now I've met a real man. You guys are losers. I mean, it would be easy for her to have said something like that had she not met Jesus the way she met Jesus. And did you notice that Jesus, by the way, didn't review all of her heartbreaks in a way to sort of fester more f anger and hatred towards them? You know, we can do that in what we think is counseling someone by lending a soft ear to someone. And they sort of support, you know, their past, but they've met Jesus. And we're in, we really need to be ambassadors of reconciliation, even if what we're just reconciling is that those areas of the past need to be separated from the present that we walk in. And that only happens through the blood of Jesus because we're a new creation with him. And if we embrace those things, we're dragging the dead old man over. And that never goes well. This girl goes, notice as well, she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could you imagine if she had said, come see a man who told me all that you ever did? I've known enough of what you've done because I bear those marks on myself, but I didn't need that. And I love this. When Jesus ministers, he goes to your heart because that's what needs to be fixed. Let's face it. The, the, your past is like the devil's amusement park because you can't change it, but you can cover it in blood. And if you look back and you live in where you came from, Hey, you remember that God has delivered you and that only causes us to praise him with greater vehemence. But let's be honest. If you just keep revisiting those things, you'll never be able to drive forward. You know, a person who spends all their time staring in their rearview mirror as they start pulling forward is going to run into something and run into it hard. And we can't build our identity from our tombstones. Jesus is not feeling the hate of her past. He's healing the heart of her present and her future. For that, he has to go to her for that. So, by the way, is this girl equipped to answer any theological question? Did you realize 
that in all of the Gospels, this girl is responsible for the biggest single event revival in all of the Gospels? Are you aware of that? Can you think of another moment? I mean, I can, we can think of moments like Jesus went to, to Caesarea. Uh, I'm sorry, he went to Capernaum. And when he went to Capernaum, he healed you know, Peter's mother-in-law, and then everyone showed up. But they showed up for healing. We don't read that everyone believes in him. That we, what we read is that everyone gets healed by him. But show me one place where there's this many people, a whole city show up and go, you know what? We actually believe you like this. This gal, of all people, this gal becomes the greatest evangelist in the Gospels. And as a matter of fact, the greatest evangelist Samaria had ever seen and will see at least for another near decade when Peter shows up there to minister to Cornelius. Until then, this is it. And there's a guy that God's going to send there named Philip the evangelist who will wind up living there in Samaria. But understand, she's the one who actually brought the first harvest. This gal. Five fame marriages. This gal living with a guy right now, giving up on what real love is. This gal. So why are you ill-equipped? And please don't say because you're not living with someone having sex outside of marriage. Please don't use that. The point is, God can use anyone who's willing. And what I love is she went and she just shared her encounter with the Lord. And can I say, that is what you should be equipped to do. More than anything. Because in the end of it all, people could try to use Christian pepper spray. You know, they ask these dumb questions. They don't even care about the answer because they think you'll just run away screaming. But in the end of it all, if you tell them what Jesus has done when you encountered him and what he has done to your life, they can't argue with that. The best they can say is, well, sheer, he's a nutter, but I can't doubt that they're sincere. And then they start watching you and they start seeing that change. That it's not a a phase, mom. It's a real deal. And you realize, all of a sudden, they're like, oh my goodness, this isn't going to be thrown in the, you know, in in the cellar with the skates and the horse grooming kit, you know, and the other things that you think, oh, that was good for a moment. You're not not going to this thing. He's, He's holding on. And all this girl shared is what she knew. Hey, I encountered Jesus, and this is what he did. He showed me everything that I did. And it was enough to make people come. Understand, all evangelism is, is bringing people to Jesus. You can't make them make a choice. But you can bring them to where they have to make one. And we're like, I'm not equipped. You're not equipped. Do you have a testimony? Has Jesus done anything in your life? And if not, then let me be the evangelist to you and say, you need Jesus. You need the life-changing Jesus. Not the let's just adopt a politic Jesus or the Jesus is my homeboy and we're cool Jesus, but the real one of the Bible, the one that changes lives, that takes the old you and slays you on the cross and raises up a new one. That's the whole point of baptism is to tell yourself and everyone else, this is what happened to me. The old me got buried and a new me got raised up. And understand this woman goes and all she does is share what she knows and it's enough. For a whole city to have a revival. That's it. <laughs> you know? I'm, you know, I'm not going to tell you about great grandpa, whatever, and his great story first. Let me tell you what Jesus did in my life. The person I was and the person I am now are so opposite each other, they wouldn't recognize each other. And it's certainly not looking in the mirror to look back at him. It's looking in the grave. So she runs, out, she runs out to the city. The guys ran and grabbed food. She runs out and grabs people. By the way, both are important. Verse 30. Then they went out of the city and came to him. Remind you that the well is outside the city. But imagine that was enough to get a whole crew of guys to go and follow her. She's like, this guy told me. It's, you, you may have a hard time believing it, but this guy told me everything I ever did. Well, what about blah, 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 blah? Well, I don't know. Why don't you go ask him yourself? What about, well, I don't know. I don't have those answers. I told you what I know. You want more? Go ask him yourself. That's so good to be able to say you don't know when you don't. Because atheists out there don't have that luxury. If they don't have an answer, they'll make one up because they have to feel like they have to answer everything. But I'm not running the universe, so I really don't have to know. I'm the kid in the car seat. And you ask, where are we going? I'm like, I have no idea, but I'm not driving. My job, to be honest, is to enjoy the ride. 
Verse 30 says, Then they went out of the city and they came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat which you do not know. Of course, when Jesus starts speaking metaphorically to a group of fishermen, they don't get that at all. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? I have food you don't know anything about. Where did he get that? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And I would imagine for those guys, they probably didn't get any of that. We might not either. But I'd like you to think about what food's supposed to do to you. I mean, not make you fat. Unfortunately, that's just a byproduct for some of us who tend to enjoy it a little too much. It nourishes us. It strengthens us and it refreshes us. I mean, it's simplest sense. It nourishes us because our body needs the nutrients that come from it. It strengthens us because when those proteins and so forth start to make their way into places that are being exercised, it strengthens them to be able to do that exercise with greater strength and endurance. And it refreshes us. And what Jesus is saying is, man, when I get to do the will of God, That's what happens to me. I'm nourished, strengthened, refreshed. And Jesus was more of all of those with a single soul saved than with a billion buffets brought to him. He could look. And you know, I realized something. That in our house, we have the term hangry. I don't know if you've had that term. What that means is when you haven't eaten and you're kind of hungry, you get this kind of grumpy attitude. Oh, it's not normally used of me. Anyway, but it's, you know, it's like, usually it's a confessional thing. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm just a little hangry right now. <clears throat> and the idea of it is if my body could get a little bit of nourishment right now, I probably would be a much nicer person. For needless to say, at a moment like that, I'm thinking, oh, where do you need, where do you need it from, and how do I get it? Uh, I mean, I'm not excluded from that rule. I'm also part of that as well. But what about spiritually? You ever wonder if we ever get spiritually hangry? You know, that place where it's like, just show me somebody getting saved. Show me somebody changing. Show me a life that was once in the toilet and is now celebrant on the hill. Show me somebody pulled out of the pit and standing on that broad place praising him. Because if Christianity is just a bunch of us meeting in a room, nodding at what we agree on idealistically, and then going out and living the life we did before, then we should be spiritually hangry. There should be a part of us that goes, man, there's got to be more than this. And you know what the problem is? Substitutes are like candy or energy drinks. And what I mean by that is, for a moment, we get the experience, and sometimes even more than the average experience, but usually on the other side of it, we find up worse than we started off. And so we fester up things to try to fill that gap. Like, let's make sure we have a physical experience in the spirit. Now, hey, there's nothing wrong with that if it's genuine. But the idea is, if I I didn't get the tingles or sweat, holy sweat, or somehow saw angel feathers fall from the sky, or somebody next to me didn't bark, or I didn't speak in at least four different tongues before the thing was done, clearly I wasn't in the spirit. And yet, somewhere in all that, I could do all that and be horribly selfish. And that just doesn't mean anything to me. I don't get that. But somewhere in all that's like, yeah, you know what? I had that, and I had an energy drink. And so, woo, 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 woo! And then I go back after the end of it, and you know what happens, you know, five hours later? You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, it's just the opposite. And if we live from one energy drink to the other, man, we're going to be messed up. Because there's something different between a true experience and wanting to see other people experience Jesus and us just trying to experience something and then tag the spirit part about it on it somewhere. And we memorize a thousand verses and we win a Bible quiz and we still don't get anything out of it. And we do whatever we can to think, well, this is how our crew excels in our little spiritual bubble. And then somewhere in all of that, but we're not watching people encounter Jesus. Because we can do all of that and encounter Jesus. And we can do all of that and not encounter Jesus. And I've watched enough people that are in sound and lights and fog machines. I've watched people that are, aren't saved that work at work for churches on Sunday and say, this is the artificial Holy Spirit, and it's a fog machine. And I think, wow, of all things, a fog machine? So we 
pump out fake fog and people think it's the Holy Spirit. Or at least these guys think other people think that. And the point is this, is that if what we really craved in our spirit was for us to encounter Jesus and for other people to encounter Jesus, wouldn't that completely correlate with the heart of God in the first place? Since that's what everything he wants is for us to encounter him and other people to encounter him and keep encountering him and draw more intimate as we do. Could you imagine how simple that is? That's the bottom line of it all. And if we don't do that, you know what's going to happen sooner or later? We're either going to become fat and lazy and call it spiritually mature, or we're going to become cynical, or we're going to be worse. We'll be both fat, lazy, calling ourselves mature and cynical. And we'll start seminaries to get young people who are excited about Jesus, not excited about Jesus anymore, because once you get mature, you stop being like that. You know, that's like someone looking at a couple and going, oh, you must be newlyweds because you're still smiling at each other. You're like, well, I don't know how horrible your marriage is, lady, but we've been married over 27 years. And you want to prove people wrong. And they're like, you know, and I remember people telling them, oh, don't worry, honey, that'll stop in a few years. Don't worry. I'm like, well, I don't know what you did to make that happen, but that's a different story. What if God gave a, God a spiritually hungry today for what he would really want? Which is not us bellying up to the spiritual experience bar, getting until we're tipsy and then popping off somewhere else until we can't, you know, sobering up. But us being so lit up so that our light isn't under a bushel, but affecting people in darkness. Imagine what would happen. Because some of you have conveyor belts of lost people coming to you. Some of us do, some of us don't. And I'm not saying that you stop doing the job you're doing unless God tells you that. But what I am telling you is, is that what happens when God says that one? Some of you are in positions where they're kind of stuck with you for a period of time. You're selling them something, you're doing art on their face or whatever it is. I mean, you've got opportunities. Some people don't. What would happen if we got spiritually angry? Not angry, hangry. Well, there's a part of us that's restless and going, oh, man, something's got to happen. The guy goes, well, then let's work with you. Because some of you, you came, probably thought you could tick your box today, and God brought you to the well for this. So Jesus says in verse 35 to his disciples, who, by the way, there's nothing wrong with offering Jesus food. If he doesn't eat sooner or later, he's going to starve to death, and that's not going to make things good either. So both need to be maintained, spiritually and physically. He says in verse 35, remember the guys are like, hey, Jesus, eat. And he's like, I, hey, I've got food you don't know anything about, which is a pretty rough thing to hear as a disciple, as a student. And you're like, you, know, you don't know anything about this stuff yet. And they're like, whoa, what food? What, what food did he get? Which clearly shows they didn't get it, you know. And then he says, you know, look at my food's to do God's will. Man, when I actually not just do it, but finish what someone else has started, when I get to finish this, complete it, Man, nothing refreshes me more. Nothing invigorates me more. Nothing strengthens me more. Nothing nourishes me more than that. Do you know that experience? And then he says, do you not say that there are still four months and then come the harvest? Behold, lift up your, ha- your eyes and look to the fields. Look at the fields. They're already white for harvest. Now, please understand. Notice he says, do you not say? So, We can take this one of two ways, or both, because that's always an option. One is it's an idiom. Now, I understand that. You know, give seed time to grow. Like, the idea of it is, and and by the way, if you ever get a chance, and I'm just going to embarrass him, talk to Mark for like five minutes. He's just got the most amazing speaking voice. It must be the Irish part. But then they've got those, you know, you go to Ireland or a place like that, they've got the most beautiful, colorful, like, metaphors. And I'm like, oh, man. That's just cool. Well, imagine it's like, I just, you know, give seed time to grow. You know, that's terrible. Sorry, Mark. You know, and the idea of it's this, to kind of give you an idea, for instance, sowing time is in the months of Tishri uh, and the Marakeshvan, which basically is somewhere between September and November is kind of the idea. That's when you sow the seed uh, because you know what happens after that is the rains come and they usually come pretty hard and that's going to, I mean, if, if the rains come hard before you plant deep, what's going to happen is that they're all, your seeds are going to float away. 
So you want to make sure you get it down early enough for that. If you get it down any earlier than that, the heat of the summer sun tends to dry out the ground and it doesn't have a chance to take root. So it's kind of a fundamental aspect. Make sure you get it, in essence, get it in the autumn months, the late autumn months. Then you kind of sit while it rains until the spring. Now, the first fruits come in the first Jewish month. By the way, Jewish months are very different from our months. The first Jewish month is March, April. It correlates normally with our Easter, their Passover, Pesach, Passover. And Passover, by the way, I remind you, the first celebration is, comes with it, the Feast of First Fruits. Now, First Fruits, by the way, would be the barley harvest, and it's the one thing that turns white at the top when it starts to come ripe. And that's important to note. So understand, it isn't like the end of the harvest. That's sort of things like apples and wheat. They don't look white at the end of it all. You know, you know that there's that beautiful kind of honey color to wheat. And If apples turn white, chances are something really wrong with them. (coughs) And those are your late harvests, your late fruit and your late wheat harvest. At the beginning are things like barley. And the reason I say that is for Jesus to say it's white for harvest tells me that he's speaking of the first harvest of the month or the first harvest of the year, first of all. But if you kind of do the math from September to November and then you go and then you go, okay, well, everything kind of starts then in sort of March, April. That's roughly, in essence, roughly four months. And so the idea of it is, Hey, give it some time. You know, you could like and say, you can't hurry, love. You just got to wait. Love don't come easy. It's a game of give and take. Anyways, but it's like the idea is, is, you know, give it some time. And you know what this is like. Like you're trying to share Jesus with someone that's never heard Jesus. And you're like, you want to get saved? And they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And you're like, but I just share, you know, and sometimes people do. And it's cool because you gave them a choice and they know that choice is there. But man, God still continues to work on him when you walk away. And that's part of the fun, isn't it? So in one case, it could be just the idiom. And the idiom is, hey, don't you guys kind of say, well, give it some time. In other words, don't go waiting for the harvest right away. Give it some time. Let this thing kind of percolate until it finally turns into the full cup of coffee. But on the other side of it, it could be actually an honest assessment of time. And if it's an honest assessment of time, that puts us again in November, December. No, it could be both. He's like, you could be saying four months is the harvest because four months is the harvest. And the only reason I say that is Jesus is talking to the disciples and I can't see them really popping off metaphors quickly at each other. Well, you know what they say, four months. But if it be the case, you know, then you get the idea that Jesus has been basically around Jerusalem, Judea for about eight months, getting ready for the next one, or the next Passover in four uh, the point isn't even that. The point is, it's like you guys are at a time where you're kind of going, wouldn't it be nice to see this? Oh, that would be so great. And Jesus says, why don't you do something different today? Look up. Notice he gives three commands in this. One of them is, look up. The second is, look at. I mean, you've been staring at the ground. But you're not looking up at the field, and you should look at the field. Because if you actually looked at the field, you'd actually see, whoa, There's a harvest there. We should do something about that. Now, what happens when you don't harvest something that's ripe? It gets overripe, and at best you got raisins. But let's face it. I mean, in the end of it all, what you've got is spoiled fruit. Now, don't miss the beauty of what Jesus is saying. Because if Jesus is at that well in Shechem, in Sichar, as we see here, and the girl goes into the city... It's obscured from his sight. And he may be on this sort of this valley that actually is a, in essence, it's a bit of a mesa in between two big hills. And down below in the lower valley of that is the city. And Jesus goes, you've been looking in the wrong place. There is a harvest and you're not seeing it. Now look up. And see the white harvest before you. And as he is saying that, a bunch of men are coming with their heads covered in white because it's still warm enough outside for them to cover their heads. And Jesus goes, it's white for harvest. And all of a sudden, over that veranda, come all these men with these white caps, these you know, sort of these white turbans on. Do you get how beautiful that metaphor is? Because the disciples even as thick as they might be, I think they got that part. He's like, you know, you've been trying in places and I get that. He goes, but here, this is early for the harvest, but it's clearly a harvest. Now, 
how in the world does something have a harvest early like this? But I suggest to you, there's really only one way for an early harvest, and that's incumbent seed that was planted early that missed the last harvest. In other words, it was a late bloomer. Someone planted it the year before, the harvest came, it never really blossomed. And you're like, oh, okay. And then you come at this point, you're going to go start sowing again. And as you're sowing again, and he would be at that time of laying the seed, you start to see this harvest. And you're like, whoa, where did you come from, little buddy? And you realize that just never blossomed last year. In other words, it had been planted prior. And the reason I say that is that's what Jesus is going to build on. But now please understand this. In Matthew 9 and in Luke 10, Jesus sends people out with this point. In Matthew 9, he's going to send out his disciples, his 12, two by two. In Luke 10, he's going to send out 70 others. 70 others means 12 plus 70. That's 82. You get that, two by two. And in both cases, in the simplest sense, he says the harvest is truly great. Now, don't miss this. Jesus is saying that then, at a time where we would not have thought there'd be a great harvest at all. And he goes, the problem isn't the harvest. What is the problem? You remember what he says? The harvest is great, but yeah, so where's the problem? It's not enough help in the fields. There's the problem. Imagine the farmer has 30 acres. And people look and go, well, he's the expert. He knows how to pick. Let him pick it all. I mean, after all, didn't he go to school for that? Didn't he study that? Isn't that what his life's about, is the field? I mean, after all, wouldn't that just be great? I mean, just, but let's face it, the guy's never going to get 30 acres done. And the farmer could look at you and say, hey, the harvest is there. You're just looking in the wrong place, but the harvest is there. You know, the problem is, there's just not enough people out there in the field picking it. And I just love the fact that when this, if we're willing to go, if we're willing to go, he has this promise for us in 36 through 38. But let me say this. I've used this in regards to the thought process that we have in our head because it also applies. But I remember once when we were, um, when I, we took a trip to Hawaii and I got to visit the Dole plant and how exciting it was for me. I mean, a factory, okay, whatever. You know, but there was something that really struck me. And I'm always kind of trying to keep my radar on for what the Lord would want to speak to me in it. And the guy that was sort of showing me around, he was sort of a sweet brother in the Lord. And he was saying, you know, one of the guys that gets paid the most around here is someone you would least expect. And I'm like, well, who is that? And they're like, that guy. And he was a guy actually standing at the conveyor belt of all things. And I was like, well, what does he do? And he goes, he's actually the fruit inspector. You see, people get paid by the, by the weight. So you don't have to be brilliant to go and cut pineapple. You just want to make sure you, that you're at least dexterous enough to not cut a leg off when you're, you know, trim. But when you cut it off, basically you cut them off. It, what if they're kind of nasty? Well, if you're getting paid by the weight, does that matter to you? You're going to fill up those crates with as many pineapples as you can, and then you bring them in. But the guy that was actually there, that's the guy that inspects. Because he, wants, he knows that the name Dole, you know, which is the brand of it, uh, that their name is, on, is, in essence, on the line if bad pineapple goes out. So he kind of looks, and basically before him are two conveyor belts. He's at the Y of it, and if something is a bad pineapple, he just puts it in the bad pineapple thing, and it goes into the fire. He goes, but if it's good, it just keeps going. Now, the reason I say that is twofold. First of all, I use that in regards to our thought life because sometimes you can't actually control everything that comes in your head. If you notice that, you're like, where in the world did that thought come from? The enemy could try to bark and he could try to tempt and he could try to lie and he could throw those at you. The issue is make sure you have a really good fruit inspector. It comes in the conveyor belt of your ear, but man, when the Holy Spirit's at work in your life, he goes, that's trash. Let's burn that. And give him the, give him the permission to go, yep, I agree with you, burn that. But on the other side of it, what if we're actually back actually in the field of human lives? It's like in the end of it all, God's like, just don't be afraid to try to reach out and pluck something. 
Now, what does that mean? How does that apply? It's quite simply giving people the choice. Isn't that it? Hey, Jesus died for you. He rose again. He paid for your sins and he offers you a brand new life. You should get that much. Nobody else offered you that. None of those other religious nuts or any of those other things. None of those guys offered that. Only Jesus. Do you want to say yes to him? No, they could say no. And you could go, well, then you ain't ripe. But what happens when they say yes? You realize nobody says yes if you don't ask them. I remember when we first came here, one of the clergy, one of the uh, vicars, not at this church, but another one close to here, says, nobody gets saved here. Nobody comes to Jesus in London. And I'm like, what's the gospel? He's like, excuse me? And I'm like, well, could you tell me what the gospel is? And you could tell we weren't going to be very great friends. But, you know, in the end of it all, it's like, look, at if you can't preach the gospel, no one's going to get saved. You can walk them around the house all you want, but if you don't show them the door, no one's coming in. So this is what Jesus promises, by the way. In other words, man, what if he just said, you know, hey, look at, I know you've known me for a while, and I know you know I'm a Christian, and if you don't, surprise. But now that you know, please let me know. It's very simple. Jesus died for me on the cross. He rose again on the third day, just as Scripture promised. He died for my sins. And hey, by the way, he wants to give you that same forgiveness and purity, and he wants to give you a new life. Would you like that? And if someone does say yes, and when someone does, try not to go, oh, really? Because people do say yes. But somebody's got to reach out and be willing to give them that choice. And when you do, you're plucking fruit. And this is what Jesus says. Verse 36, and now we're near the end. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. Notice he doesn't say the scripture, but the saying is true. I sent you to reap for that which you've not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Here are the three things he promises. First of all, you're duly rewarded for your efforts. Notice he says right here, he who reaps receives wages. Imagine God doesn't pay somebody, if you will, who doesn't work. That only happens in welfare states. But in the end of it all, you get paid when you work. Second, did you notice that your fruit is imperishable? Gathers fruit for eternal life. It isn't like you gather something and then, oh, sorry, by the time it actually got to the factory, it's spoiled. He's like, you're gathering fruit of eternal life. This never perishes. The moment someone says yes to Jesus, they say yes to Jesus and God takes them seriously. You're duly rewarded for your efforts. Your fruit is imperishable. And third, you get to join the harvest party with the other workers at the end. He says that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. And do you know what happens in the end of it all? It's a time of celebration. But imagine celebrating the fact that God has done amazing things through us and you're watching people and they're like, it was just awesome. I just said yes and I shared what Jesus has done in my life. I gave them a choice. They said yes. Can you imagine that? And then they turn and then the next guy's like, yeah, it was crazy. I just shared what Jesus is doing in my life. I gave him a choice and they said yes. Wow, isn't that crazy how God works? And then they turn to you and you go, uh, next, because you didn't do it. And he goes, how do you rejoice together with everyone else when everyone else is blown away at what God has done and they just offered it and you were willing? Because, man, the problem isn't the fruit. The problem is the laborers. Now, don't miss this. Back in the last chapter, Jesus said this is the verdict. The light has come into the world, but men hated the light because their deeds were evil. They wouldn't step into the light because if they did, their evil deeds would be clearly seen as evil. But he who loves the light would step into the light and actually joyfully do so because then it would be manifest or made clear that what's been done has been done by God. I find it interesting as in the last chapter, a religious guy, if you will, stepped in in the middle of the night and kind of hid in that darkness and escaped out of that darkness. He'll step into the light clearly before Jesus is done. But in that, this, these people, on the other hand, it's broad day. Did you notice the difference? Last chapter it was nighttime when all that happened. Now it's midday. And as it's midday, this girl runs and gets a bunch of people. They are walking in the light. And they're just, because remember, she said, he told me everything I ever did. Now, do you want to go to Jesus and have him tell you everything you ever did? Well, if he's a forgiving savior, yeah, I'll take it. And let's face it, some of us, we're well aware of what we've done. And we're like, the only reason to rehash this is to put it to rest. And Jesus is like, that's the point. There's no reason to throw in your face but rather it's better to throw it in the sea. 
So many Samaritans in that city believed in him because of the word which the woman testified when he said, he told me that I ever did. So the Samaritans, when they had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Remember, these were guys who were in Samaria. This was really uncomfortable for a Jewish guy. He sent him into the city. They have no idea that he's sending him into the city because we're going to be staying there for a couple days. You know, it's like, um, let's get in, let's get out, let's get our food and let's get out. It says many more believed because of his own word. And I wonder if Jesus then says, all right, let me tell you what you've done. And then they said to the woman, we, now we believe. Notice that's the end result here. It wasn't, hey, by the way, we're glad to get healed by him. By the way, it's really cool how he gave us a bunch of fish and loaves. In Samaria, they're like, you know what? Now we believe. Not because of what you said. For we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The Savior of anyone who will say yes to him. Now don't miss this. Your testimony, like this woman's testimony, gets them on the bus. But Jesus saves them. All you're really trying to do is get them to ask. You want to know more about Jesus? Ask him. I don't have to have every answer, but I can tell you what he's done in my life. And I'd like to invite you to encounter him like I've encountered him. I encountered him. He laid out all of my regrets bare, and then he buried them for good. And he made me new. I'll take it. How about you? You interested? I have a lot of questions. Of course you have a lot of questions. I had a lot of questions. Well, what about this? I don't know. You're asking the wrong person. I can tell you what he did to me. In John chapter 9, there's a man who's born blind. And Jesus gives him sight. And then he gets grilled by people. And I love his answer. They're like, well, what did he do? He's like, I don't know. I would just know as I was blind and now I could see. They're like, well, I don't know. Where is he from? I don't know where he's from. Look at all he knows. I was blind. I could see. I don't know. All I need to share is what I know. Because to be honest, most of the questions, 99% of the questions people ask, they don't really care about the answer, except for this one. Do you really believe? Do you really believe that there's only one way to heaven? Yeah, I really do. It's a gift. Everything else is an earning, and dead people can't earn. And you're like, I'm afraid that someone will go, oh, the audacity. But when you stand up for that, why are people joining terrorist groups? Do you think it's glamorous? Or because somebody actually has enough chutzpah and backbone to actually say, this is what I believe, deal with it. I mean, they just kind of go and they lay out the straight course and say, this is what it is. And we're like busy dancing the cha-cha and nobody knows where we're going because we don't even know where we're going. Do you really believe that there was a flood that covered the whole earth? Yeah, I do. Crazy. You're crazy to think water covered the whole earth. Do you believe in an ice age? Yeah. Did ice cover the whole earth? Yeah, and ice is made out of... I mean, it's weird, you know, but in the end of it all, they're really just looking to see someone who believes. Let's face it, if we aren't willing to testify that we believe in Jesus, why should they? And I just want us to go to prayer now. Now, I gave you all one of these, or actually my beautiful wife did. Did you all get one of these? This is not so that, because oh, I'm going to go long and you're going to nibble. Um, I'd like you to consider something, and we're going to pray right after this. I want you to give this to someone this week. Hey, there's others over there if you just want to eat them. But I want you to give this some, hear me on this. What is this? That's well, pretty simple, right? It's a peanut or a monkey nut, if you want to call it that. Uh, well, actually, it's two, if we're going to be honest, in a shell. What you don't know is this is uh, salvation in a shell, is what it is. In Tanzania, there were places where people were starving to death and nothing would grow in the ground. Nothing. And someone planted one of these, just one. And it grew. And it grew remarkably well. It grew so remarkably well, they realized they could harvest this. 
and an entire town that was starving and mostly menless because of AIDS became a town where they were growing peanuts to the orchard full. And people were coming all around to get it. And then they realized something else. Peanut oil becomes even a greater commodity in all of Africa. So we helped the church there get a press, a peanut press. And what happened is then people started growing peanuts in all of their yards. As they started growing peanuts in all of the yards, they knew that at least the part that they weren't feeding their families with, the part that they were turning in essence to currency, they would do better if they would crush it into oil. But the only one in the entire community was at the church. So people were coming and recognizing that the person who planted the first one of these was an architecture student from our church. And what was so cool about this was, is this, this one little nut, if you will, is an entire salvation of an entire city in the making. It just needs to be planted and it needs to blossom and bear fruit. And this is you. This is you right now. And Psalm 82 tells us, by the way, 14, 19, 14, it says that he was planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of their God. Man, you get planted and you start bearing fruit and the entire city's changed. And might I say, this is a woman at the well who when she got planted and she encountered Jesus, she ran and told everyone else how she encountered Jesus and they went in and guess what happened to them? They encountered Jesus. And as they encountered Jesus, they got saved. And a whole city was changed because of one nut. And I'm looking at a bunch of nuts right now. Someone this week, and I'm going to be praying for you this week. Someone this week needs to know that they can encounter Jesus too. And it's as simple as them giving him permission. And if there, if you, at that moment, God goads you to the point where you can't stand it anymore and you got to share it, then share it. Then give him your peanut because it's their turn. But I just invite you to come and say yes to Jesus. I'm not inviting you to shave your head and sell flowers or walk around in an orange suit playing a drum down Oxford Street. I'm inviting you to say yes to Jesus. And if you're willing to say yes to Jesus... He's willing to meet you there and he's willing to tra to transform you forever. But that's your choice. So this is your little reminder. So don't eat this one. Eat the rest of them. But take one with you. And today, may God remind you when later on you pull this thing on and go, what in the world? What was this about again? Remind you that this is you first. And as you're planted, then God changes everything. How do you get planted? You encounter Jesus and you stay there. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you so much for your beautiful word. I want to thank you for where you've met us. I want to thank you for how you've walked us through this chapter. I want to thank you for how this woman's life serves as a testimony for so many of us as a goad that we can't excuse ourselves from what you would call us to is to share what you've done in our lives. So, Lord, I pray today for every one of us that we would be planted in your house, that we would be planted in fellowship, and that we would be planted, Lord, in a way that as you insert us then into other communities, the community of the people you've given us influence over, that we would be bold enough to let them know that there's a choice to be made and they could encounter you if they're willing to accept you on your terms, if they're willing to give you permission. And as they do, that you're willing to transform them, ever willing, because it's not your desire that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And you desire all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. <clears throat> Lord, that means them too. So Lord, I pray for every one of us that you inspire us today. Motivate us, Lord. That, Lord, we would be reminded what you told us, that he who reaps receives wages. And then they gather for fruit for eternal life. That both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. I want that day of rejoicing, Lord, and I want it to even start. Now, Lord, may we lift up our eyes, look to the fields and see that they're white for harvest. Show us where the fields are white for harvest and where they're not. Give us willingness to plant to sow and to plant. Give us willingness to weed up whatever you want, but Lord, in that, to plant, because we recognize some places there's no harvest because no one's ever laid seed. 
And we recognize for some, we may lay seed for somebody else to get that harvest. You showed us that here. For some, we may get harvest because someone else has laid seed. You showed us that here. Make us willing for both. Remind us that when we give someone a choice and they say no, that's still a seed planted for someone else to harvest or us to harvest later. And at the sound of this voice, maybe that's the choice you've not made yet. And you know that you need to say yes to Jesus Christ. Well, if that's the case, pray this prayer with me right now. God, I'm a sinner. And you punish sin, but you punish sin by taking my sin upon Jesus and letting him hang on the cross for me. And when he died there, he paid all the punishment I deserve before you. Just like scripture promised, he was buried and rose again on the third day and offers me a new life. He offers, for, he offers me forgiveness and remission of those sins. And he offers me a brand new life. And for that, I say yes. If all you're asking is my permission, I give you permission to be Savior and Lord of my life. So have me, make me new. Transform me now, I pray. Jesus, I'm yours in your name. If you agree with that prayer, I ask you to agree by saying, Amen. God, you've heard our prayers. Take us seriously and send us out of here, Lord, ready for a harvest. May we plant this seed somewhere. And Lord, for some, give them the hunger to grab more seeds, if you will. But Lord, in that, put us in that place where we're willing to go out to the field, Lord. And as the harvest is rich, well, then send us as laborers, even as we say in God, God, give us the world. Give us the souls, Lord, of the hungry and hurting people. God, in that, use us, please. So, Lord, even today, come and save. In your name we pray. Amen.